Our Father, we're thankful that you have continued to remain faithful throughout all history, that your character changes not, and because your character changes not, and because you are immutable, because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, we have an absolute point of reference. We have an absolute source of stability, and therefore we can rest upon what you say and what you have done. And we think of the great promises of Scripture, that by faith we understand that the ages were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which we see, which we experience, did not arise out of apparent causes. But behind it all was your sovereign counsel. And we thank you that as we walk from one moment into the next, that you have preceded the present, you already dwelling in the future. And we can walk to you as we walk into our futures. We thank you now for the salvation that we enjoy, which comes about only through the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. We've uh, reviewed one of these verses, uh, Hebrews 11.3, several weeks, uh, that I quoted in the prayer. And that's a basic verse because everything in our lives are under the sovereign counsel of the will of God. And that is, uh, is something that the author of Hebrews wants us to keep in mind. Um, Tonight I'd like to introduce another promise in that same motif. What we're trying to do is to make practical um, the central teaching of Scripture regarding who God is and who we are as creatures. And we go back again and again hundreds of times for repetition the creator-creature distinction. We can't get enough of that because that is the essence of the entire counsel of the Word of God. So tonight, as you turn to James chapter 4, we're just going to review a simple promise before we get into the main lesson. And this continues that theme. And the theme is that a Christian thinks God's thoughts after him. We do not invent truth. We discover truth that he has already created. So there's a world of difference between the Christian following biblical lines of thinking and the unbeliever following lines of thinking of the flesh. The unbeliever, or in uh, our parlance, the pagan way of thinking is to to be entertained with a notion that man invents truth. Whereas Scripture says that God has created the truth and man discovers it. So, the Christian is said to think God's thoughts after him. At least that's the ideal. And we start with the Creator who has a pre-existing thought, language, and meaning. So, all vocabulary words, all meaning comes about by the context of history. And history is driven by the sovereignty of God. God has ordained every moment of history, every atom, every electron, every proton, Not that he has destroyed free will, not that he has excluded human responsibility, but that all of history, including human responsibility, is under his sovereign design. And because of this, all of man's thinking is a derivative. Man has a derivative nature. So our meanings, our thoughts, our vocabulary is dependent upon God's thoughts, God's vocabulary, and the meaning that God has invested in that. 
Now, in James chapter 4, we have a very practical application to ordinary business decisions that James was addressing to the Jewish uh, readers in wherever the place was that James wrote to. Practically speaking, thinking according to Scripture, we take our plans and we submit them to God. And that's the position that James is taking here in chapter 4, verse 13. And he says, Come to you who say. In other words, there are people in that congregation who were planning their lives as though the creator-creature distinction didn't ever existed. And he says, Now look, you're saying this. Here's how you're planning. Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a city and spend a year there, engage in business and make a profit. That's a business plan. That's the essence of a good business plan. Could be a vacation plan, could be any kind of a plan. But the idea is this is how we, we, we plan. And he says, okay, you're saying that we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. Verse 14. Now here's where he introduces the Creator's sovereign will, cutting across our plans. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I'm sure you've been in a workplace where you've had a person who you worked alongside of and then one morning you come to work and they're dead. Um, that happened to me a while back in, at the Proving Ground. Man, 41 years old, engineer. And uh, all of a sudden he didn't show up one morning and he had dropped dead. So... That's the extreme version of getting your life plans uh, vetoed. But the idea here is that we have to live, doesn't say don't make plans, because he's going to show in verse 15 the alternative. Verse 14 is a warning. It's just like a sandwich. Verse 13 is the plan as though we would do it in the energy of the flesh thinking in terms of categories that ordinary people, regenerate or unregenerate, would think about. And that's, that's the one line of approach. Then verse 14 challenges the content of verse 13. So watch it now. Verse 13 is the plan. Verse 14, he says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. So what he's doing is going back to the finite, limited mind of the finite creature. You don't know what your life is going to be like. You're just a vapor. So now he goes on, not only do we not know what tomorrow brings, but we also know that our lives are very tenuous and can disappear uh, very quickly. Verse 15 now is a corrected version of verse 13. Verse 15 is planning as under the Lord. Instead, you ought to say, and he's not talking around, he's not saying every time you open your mouth, you say, if God wills, if God wills, if God wills, ad agnosium, not being an idiot about it. What he's saying in verse 15 is, if God wills, that's just understood. In other words, God has veto power. And it's simply a recognition of his sovereignty, that's all. It's a recognition of his omnipotence. It's a recognition that whatever we plan down here is very, very tenuous and can't be executed unless it fits with what's up here at the creator level. So he says, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. And please notice, verse 15 ends with the plan. 
He is not saying, do not plan. Some people read this thing and say, oh, well, we don't plan for tomorrow. Wrong. Failure to comprehend verse 15. The last part of verse 15 is just a repetition of verse 13. It says, do this or that. In other words, go ahead and do your plans, but have your plans understood in your mind that they're subject to his veto. Now, what that does, it relieves a lot of frustration. Because if you don't work that way, if we consist on trying to plan it the way we're doing it, we wallow around in this mess where we're trying to get order, unity and order in our lives and we have everything planned out and then I can or I will. And we make these inflexible plans, whether it's business, spiritual life, family or church. And it's just a personal version of a totalitarian political state. Except in this case, we have our own little zone that we're ruling like totalitarians. And it just mirrors a, a spirit of dictatorship, a spirit of the autonomous creature. And what happens? Well, we get frustrated. And then, of course, once God interrupts our plans and the whole thing falls apart, then we come on over here. Now I can't and I failed and I did this and it's a mess and uh, total depression. And this oscillation goes on back and forth when we approach life this way. So the promise in James is a nice one uh, because it's rooted in a very practical, easy-to-see situation. So remember James chapter 4, verse 13, 14, and 15 because it's a good practical illustration of what we're talking about. Okay. Now we're going to move on tonight further in to study of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And... Before we do that, there's a few things we want to, um, to understand. If you go in the notes, um, I want to just back up a minute because I know some of you haven't been here too much. Verse, uh, I mean, uh, page 76. Uh, I'm going to just real quickly go over 76 and 77 because on those two pages of notes, there are four links between the blood atonement and the Messiah. Now, what we've said so far is that just as every event in Christ's life, let's review the, the events in Christ's life. His birth, we studied that last year. His life, studied that last year. Now we're coming to his death. And why are we approaching it this way? Because words and meanings are set by their context. And the context is history. And the Bible gives us history. Remember, one of the unique things about Bible Christianity, and there's no other religion in the world except Old Testament Judaism that has this feature, is that it is historic religion. Remember, over the last few years, we've, we've quoted Dr. Albright, who was basically the father of American archaeology and taught many years at Johns Hopkins. And Dr. Albright, after studying the ancient East and all these ancient religions, came up with this interesting observation. He said that nowhere, nowhere in all of history can you find an example of a people who made a written contract with their God. Not one continent, not one language, not one people group. Never. There's only one people on the face of this planet who ever had a written contractual agreement with their God. That's the Jews. And it's an amazing feature. And it's because God, who was the God of the Jews, the God of the Scriptures, this God speaks and He writes. 
All the other gods are phonies. And they don't reveal verbally, and they don't write. So it's obvious that only the God of the Scripture writes contracts. And he holds himself to terms of the contracts. And this is why often you get so frustrated reading Scripture and you get into the begats and the beguts and the history of this and the history of that. And you say, what is all this? It is a historical record to show the faithfulness of God to the contractual terms of these covenants and the unfaithfulness of his people to those same contractual terms. So, in the life, birth, life, and death of Christ, we have a further chapters in God's faithfulness. And each time there's a great event in history, truths are revealed about God. And it's learning about these events and associating with the truths that fires our imaginations and gives us the ability to think through what he's talking, what he's talking about. The birth, remember... The critical doctrines that are taught in the birth of Christ is the doctrines of God and man. And then we, there are a few other doctrines thrown in there. But can't understand the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and the incarnation unless first we have an understanding of who God is and who man is according to Scripture. Then when we came to the life of Christ, we said one of the great doctrines here is the doctrine of revelation, that God reveals himself. God reveals himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is man. It is the only time in history of the universe where the creator of the entire universe incarnated himself. Not as a Martian, not as somebody in Galaxy 552 somewhere, but he incarnated himself in a creature that he made in whose image? Genesis. He created man in the image of God. He didn't create dogs in the image of God. He didn't create apes in the image of God. He didn't create dolphins in the image of God. He only created one entity, and that's called the human being. He created human beings in the image of God. Why did he do that? Because centuries and centuries and centuries after Genesis, there would come a time when God would have to prepare a body and have to enter this world and walk the face of this planet. And in the incarnation of Christ and in this revelation, he accomplished what all the radio telescopes NASA has in the southwestern United States can't do. And that is contacted extraterrestrial life. Not only contact extraterrestrial life, but contacted the God of the universe's life. That's the st tremendous truths that come out of the incarnation of Christ. Now we come to the death of Christ and it's the same thing. The death of Christ is going to show us a lot about God's justice. A critical component of the gospel missing today. Because in many so-called gospel presentations, all we hear is Jesus Christ is going to help you out. Jesus Christ is going to straighten out your life. Jesus Christ does this. Jesus Christ... Does. All those may be true, but that's not the gospel. Those are the results of the gospel. The gospel is that sinners people who are under the just condemnation of God can be reconciled to Him. You may feel good about it, you may not feel good about it. It has nothing to do with human emotions. It has all to do with God's character. People can come to Christ in an utterly unemotional way, and other people have great emotions. And sometimes what happens in religious circles is that people with a lot of emotions start condemning people who don't show a lot of emotions and saying, oh, those people aren't spiritual. Nothing, nothing to do with that. The issue is whether God accepts each one of us. 
The issue is whether God accepts me, whether he accepts you. That's the issue. And that is a legal issue. That's something to do with his character. That has to do with his justice. And throughout the death of Christ and everything we're going to talk about and associated with this, this word will come up again and again and again and again. Because unless God's justice is satisfied, we have no salvation. God's justice has to be satisfied. No matter what he does on the cross, what he does on the cross has to meet his justice. Otherwise, God, can't, God would change. We said God is immutable. He changes not. He is a God who has passed sentence that the sinner shall die. That's his sentence. He can't reverse his sentence. That's undoing truth. So, since God has ordained death for sin... He's got to come out with another way of coping with it such that the original sentence isn't violated and the justice behind the original sentence isn't violated. See, a lot of people have screwy ideas today. We've uh, come to the end of, of a century, basically a hundred years in this country, when the Word of God has not seriously been taught and has not seriously been, been studied apart from a few minority groups. And the mainstream of so-called Christendom has not been faithful in the 20th century to articulate a strong view of Scripture and therefore have a very sloppy gospel. And the result is, is that today you can go out on the, on the sidewalk here and talk to people and they think that God is going to forgive them from their sin and pat them on the head and everything's going to be fine. Now God does not forgive sin unless he can do so with justice. This is never compromised. And it's so ironic that people think this way because we also live in a generation that's always talking about justice and human rights. We've got human rights for everything from the ant on up to the elephants. Everything that is except the unborn fetus. No justice for it. But we have all of this talk about rights and justice by the very generation which, when it turns around a relationship with God, never even thinks of justice or rights. So, we want to uh, show that um, justice throughout history, prior to Jesus Christ, was tied in with blood sacrifices. Now, sometimes pagan religions, taking that as a basic truth inherited from Noah, have distorted this. There have been people like the Aztecs and the Incas in the Western Hemisphere who have slaughtered their babies, who have slaughtered each other on stone uh, altars because of blood sacrifice. That's not what we're talking about. That's a distortion of the truth. What the Scripture says from Genesis 3 onward is that God is saying, since justice demands death and justice is inherently restitutional, that is, what is violated must be paid, must be paid back. That's the basic concept of biblical justice. The problem is that Adam and Eve, at the point that they sinned, had no merit. And they had no thing within themselves, because they now have died spiritually. They haven't got life to replace the life for lost. So now how, under a restitutionary system of justice, is restitution going to be made when there's no, no source for the restitution? And so very quickly in the garden, God, when he saw that, after he announced the gospel to Adam and to Eve, and they believed, 
and showed their faith, at that point, God slaughtered the first animal. With all due respect to animal rights groups, God was the one who killed the first animal. And he killed the first animal in order to provide salve, a picture of salvation for the human race. So Adam and Eve had to stand there. They'd never seen this before. They were living in a perfect environment. There was never any death. Uh, they had fallen. Now they looked, and here came God walking in the garden. And he grabbed an animal and slaughtered it in front of their eyes. Tore the skin off the carcass and made clothes and gave them a leather set of clothes. And so every time Adam and Eve put on their clothes, what did they think about? They thought about the source of that leather. They had to think about the animal who had to be slaughtered in front of them. And so in order to be covered, they had to wear this leather tunic. Day after day after day, every time they put it on, they would have to remember the source of death, the death that caused that. So that's restitutionary justice. Now the issue here on page 76 and 77 is that that concept of a blood sacrifice, restitution for violated justice, is not only taught repetitively in the Old Testament, but it is aligned with a whole stream of prophecies about the coming Messiah. Remember back in the Garden of Eden, God said to Eve, in a very strange in the original language, He says to this woman, Your sperm will be against the sperm of Satan. And the very vocabulary tells you there's something odd about this one. That's the original language. That's what it says. So how can God speak about sperm from a woman? It's because He's talking about the virgin birth. That sentence would make no sense throughout the centuries of the Old Testament. People would strain to understand that. And to see that, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. Because here, the Apostle Peter tells us a little bit about the mind of those Old Testament people that would read these kinds of things and have a hard time trying to understand them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. He's talking about the salvation, verse 10 context. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. Who's the subject of the sentence in verse 10? The prophets. And who are the prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Samuel. All the people who basically were the writers of Scripture. These are the guys that produced the Old Testament. Now, this is a classic reference in verse 10. Sometimes, you know, you, have your curiosity ever, has your curiosity ever led you to think about, well, gee, I wonder what these guys did when they wrote the Scriptures. Uh, I mean, what were they thinking about? Were they, you know, were they listening to a dictating machine? Uh, were they, they conjuring this up? Did they have dreams and visions? What was going on? We can't control all of what was going on, but we do have verses like verse 10 that tell us about how they thought about themselves when they were involved in generating the Old Testament. Because verse 10 says, they had the ideas, the, the ideas came from God. God spoke to these people. The Word of God, the Word of Yahweh came to the prophets. And to show you, in contrast, remember, to the liberals, because remember the concept of the liberal is that you have the ideas of Scripture 
And then you have history over here. And that these things are purely from man. And these man experiences history and he has ideas about it. The ideas are wholly human. That's the, that's the biblical, that's the liberal view of the Bible. It was written out of human experience of history. But in verse 10, we have something that cuts across that thought and challenges it. Because what Peter is saying is that the prophets who prophesied of the grace, in other words, here they are, they are writing Scripture, the ideas aren't coming from them, the ideas are coming from God, and they can't understand what it is they're writing. He says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. They were thinking about this. They were praying about this. This was on their minds. What was on their minds? Verse 11 is a participle clause that amplifies what they were doing. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them... There's the source of the Old Testament now. The Spirit of Christ... The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit, it's called Spirit of Christ here because the theme of the Bible correctly understood is the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, the thing that deeply troubled the Old Testament prophets was this. How could the Messiah suffer and die and then also how could he be the glorious king and that is a $64,000 question of the Old Testament they never got it together and the apostle says the the best of the Old Testament prophets never could come to grips with this all they knew was that there were two apparently contradictory themes in the scriptures That the Messiah, on the one hand, was prophesied to die, he was prophesied to suffer, and yet on the other hand, he would be the glorious king who would live forever. So there are four things that we want to review on pages 76 to 77, linking now the suffering of the substitutionary blood atonement over to the Messiah. On page 76, the first one is Genesis 3.15. You can circle that because that's one of your key references. That is called by scholars the Proto-Evangelium. That is the first evangelism or the first announcement of the Gospel. Classic passage. You can kind of remember it from John 3.16, subtract 1. Genesis 3.15. Two. The second thing is that every one of the covenants, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, and the Sinaitic, required a blood sacrifice prior to their inauguration. In other words, the Old Testament covenants demanded a blood sacrifice on the front end. So it was as though God, the Holy God, the Holy Creator reaches down with a piece of paper. It's like uh, you get a mortgage note from your banker or a uh, contract for your car or installment payment or something. That's the same idea, contract. So here God would reach down with his contract, but he is holy and he is just. And so before we can pick the other side of the contract up, see, he's got it in his hand. He's holding it in his hand. Man reaches out to touch 
that contract, but he can't touch it because God is holy and righteous. And so therefore, before man can contact the covenant, what has to happen? There has to be a blood of sacrifice to show that the holy God can come into covenant agreement with man only on the basis of the shed blood of Christ. Only by grace can an agreement be made between God and man. That's pretty good observation. You might want to write in your notes somewhere here that we're going to have to deal with the implication of this later when it comes to what are the ramifications of the atonement of Christ for the unbeliever who goes eventually to hell. How does the blood of Christ affect the one who eventually dies in rejection of the gospel? How does the blood of Christ affect the material universe? How does the blood of Christ deal with angels? All these are questions. There's a big, big expanse of stuff that's associated with what happened on the cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And it's not all just because of believers. So, the third thing that links the Messiah is that the substitutionary blood atonement, the role of the Messiah, was most prominent in the great judgments and salvations of Old Testament history. Now, when we go through Old Testament history, do you remember those two events that both involved a tremendous judgment on God's part and liberation of a saved group of people, a public salvation and judgment. Well, one was the Noahic Flood. The other was the Exodus. Now, those are two events. We can think about them. And if you can think about these, you will correct any kind of tendencies to get wobbly here on what judgment salvation means. In both these cases, we have judgment and we have salvation linked together. You don't have one without the other. You can't have salvation without judgment. And because God is gracious, every one of His judgments involves salvation up until a point. Both of these involve a covering. The ark of Noah, that big boat, was said to have covered. And exactly the word for atonement is used for whatever the pitch was that was covering the lumber that was on the outside of the ark. It's all pitched over. And that's the word kofar in Hebrew. In Exodus, what was on the doorposts? Blood, blood, and blood, who showing virtually the sign of the cross. And what did the angel do when he saw blood on the door? Did he say, well, if there are good people in there, then I'll let them alone. They're bad people, I'm going to come in there anyway. The decision of passing over or judging was made strictly on one thing. Nobody's scintillating personality. It was based on whether there was blood on the door. Every person who headed a household had to make a decision. Are we or are we not going to trust against the angel of death blood on the door? If we put blood on the door, we're trusting. And if we don't believe God, we're not going to do it and suffer the consequences. It has nothing to do with kind of personalities. There could have been religious people who didn't believe, and they were damned. They lost the firstborn sons. There could be irreligious people who did believe, 
And they were saved. It didn't matter about their background. It mattered only as to whether they personally trusted in Jehovah's promise to them. No human merits. No human gimmicks. It was strictly on the basis of God's provisions against His own judgment. Okay. Now, that was what was happening. And this whole idea of judgment salvation was wrapped up for the Jewish people in what ceremony that is still observed in Orthodox Jewish homes and a lot of other Jewish, Reformed Jewish homes also. Passover. Passover every April. Or March, depending on the calendar. And what was Jesus doing on the night in which he was betrayed? He was celebrating Passover. And so here the Messiah dies on Passover, and he, um, we're going to study that a little bit too. So he fulfills the Passover. The fourth picture is found in Isaiah 53, which if you will turn there, halfway through the Old Testament, one of the most famous passages in all the Old Testament about the suffering Messiah that was to come. This is the most controversial passage in Jewish and Christian relations today. Where those relations center on Scripture, that is. There's a lot of debate over this passage. This has caused more people, more problems, for more centuries in the Jew-Gentile controversy than any play, anything that I know of, other than the, uh, try, the attempted genocide that uh, Gentile politicians have tried against the Jewish people. But let's look at this. This is Isaiah 53. Verse 1 and verse 2. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? By the way, the arm of the Lord is a messianic term. It refers in the Old Testament passages to the Messiah. You know why? Because the arm was what held the sword. And it was the sword who gave victory and deliverance. So it became an emblem of the Messiah. To whom has the arm of the Lord? Who is going to be the one who frees? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he has no form of majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. That is the closest picture, by the way, verse 2. That is the closest verse you will ever read in the Bible to what Jesus looked like. So there's an example if you have artistic inclination sometime, and you want to paint a picture of Jesus, um, lest you paint some fossil from the 60s. Um, this is what the real Jesus looked like. And he has no appearance that we should be attracted to him. The only other reference I can think of in Scripture to what he looked like was a reference that was made by his enemies when he was in a debate with the Pharisees and they said, huh, you're not yet 50. Jesus was 30. So he probably looked older than he was. So that's the hint that you get from the New Testament. This is the hint we get from the Old Testament. He was a very, very ordinary kind of person. On some Tom Cruise or something. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, 
And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did, esteem, did not esteem him. Surely our grace... And here's the key passage that is so controversial right here. Here it's coming. Our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed ourselves, uh, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, he carried our griefs upon him, and the human race who witnesses him, or will witness him, witnesses him as one who himself is cursed of God. That is going to be, we're going to deal with that truth later. But the idea is people look upon the Messiah when he's suffering and interpret his sufferings as him being cursed by God. He is a cursed person. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. So, here's the messianic passage, and the question of all questions down through Jewish history has been, to whom does Isaiah 53 refer? It was always taken to mean the Messiah up until, on page 77 of your notes, middle paragraph, please follow now, where I quote the history of this passage. You need to know this as Christians, because someday you're going to be called upon in conversation... Somewhere, sometime, the Lord can put you in a position where you're going to have to know this. Evidence abounds that first century Jews interpreted this passage messianically. Today you will hear it said that, oh no, the standard Jewish interpretation of Isaiah 53 is not the Messiah, it's the nation Israel. So Israel as a nation replaces the Messiah in the modern Jewish thought. But is modern Jewish thought the same as ancient Jewish thought? And so that's what we're working with in this paragraph. Evidence abounds that first century Jews interpret this passage messianically. Not until the Middle Ages did the rabbis shift to what is claimed today as the Jewish interpretation. Namely, that Isaiah 53 speaks of the nation Israel alone, not of an individual within the nation. Now, Middle Ages, how many centuries after Christ? Nine? Ten centuries? In other words, it's interesting that no one even thought of interpreting Isaiah 53 this way until nine plus centuries had gone by of debate between the gospel and unbelief. Some Gentile scholars, however, insist that first century Jews did not recognize any vicarious suffering of the Messiah in this passage. By vicarious, we mean suffering in place of others. That is, verse 4, the content of verse 4. These scholars are opposed by most Hebrew Christian scholars. And by the way, if you're not aware of it, there are probably, percent-wise, more Jews that believe in the Messiah out of the total Jewish population than there are non-Jews that believe in the Messiah. You say, oh, no, I don't believe it. Well, listen, how many Jews are there in the world? 15, 20 million? Okay? You don't, in your fraction here, the numerator and the denominator, if you've got a small denominator, you don't need a big numerator to get a high percent. But how many people total in the whole world? Big denominator. So to get the same percent, you have to have a big numerator. So that's an interesting point of history, that the percent 
of communities and people groups that believe is probably as high in the Jewish community as anywhere else. And by the way, they have made some of the finest Christian scholars. If you ever want to, if you read CBD or whatever the book place is, uh, and you want a neat uh, two-volume set on the Messiah, it's Edersheim. Alfred Edersheim was a Jewish person. Um, the man who uh, taught many years at Old Testament, Dallas Seminary, and who went and founded Talbert Seminary in the West Coast, Dr. Feinberg, was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who accepted Christ in his life. And he was one rigorous professor. He really required every preacher boy to know the Hebrew language inside and out. And many were the men who flunked his class because Feinberg was no nonsense man in the classroom. So there are a lot of Hebrew, Hebrew Christians. Today, one of the most uh, articulate who goes around the world the most is Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a personal friend of mine. Dr. Fruchtenbaum notes, and by the way, Arnold, I know him for years, we went to seminary together, um, just to uh, put salt in the wound, Arnold figured when he wanted to get his PhD, he, he, he looked around, and the way he picked out where the university was to get his PhD was where the most Jews were getting PhDs. So he picked out New York University. And he went to New York University and got his doctorate at New York University and spent his entire graduate period of training arguing with rabbis in New York City. And if you want to watch an argument, you watch a Hebrew Christian go at it with a non-Messianic Jew. You think you've seen arguments. When I watch this kind of debate and an argument go on, I think, wow, no wonder Paul the Apostle almost got stoned. Because it must have been the same kind of torrid atmosphere. And I mean, they go at it. You talk about two boxers going after it. You watch a Hebrew Christian go after it on the Messiah. They'll lock in on passages and debate the Hebrew and the, Greek, the Hebrew text and this and that and the Messiah and what the rabbi said and what the rabbi didn't say and so on. It's amazing to watch. Dr. Fruchtenbaum notes that the Zohar, written in A.D. 110, before or after Christ, after Christ, okay? The Zohar, written after the Lord Jesus Christ, preserves an old first century interpretation of Isaiah 53, and here it is, quote, Were it not that Messiah had thus lightened sickness, pain, chastisement off of Israel and taken them upon himself, there had been no man able to bear Israel's chastisement of the transgression of the law. Now clearly, whoever wrote that thing was interpreting Isaiah 53 as referring to the Messiah, not the nation Israel. Surely there is an element of vicarious or substitutionary messianic suffering in this non-Christian Jewish first century tradition. Furthermore, Fruchtenbaum points out, this interpretive tradition of Isaiah 53 continued, continued after 110 in Jewish circles well into the Christian era, according, uh, occurring in remarkable places such as the Yom Kippur Musaf prayer written in the 7th century A.D. Now we're talking six centuries after Christ. Here's the prayer. Messiah, our righteousness, is departed from us. He has borne the yoke of our iniquities, our transgressions. He bears our sins that he may find pardon for our iniquities. Obviously, Isaiah 53 is on the mind of the person of the 7th century. Okay. So, the point is that the Messiah is linked to suffering and he is linked to 
the substitutionary atonement. Now we want to start into, on page 78 of the notes, we want to study now how the New Testament presents the cross. These are only highlights because we have four of these highlights to examine. The first one, we're going to turn to Galatians 3, verse 13. Now, remember what I said. In Isaiah 53, there was that little statement about we esteemed him stricken of God. It's a prophecy of how people would interpret the cross and the death of the Messiah. Maybe if I say it this way, it'll be most clear. In thinking about the Messiah dying, you could have thought of, if you were an Old Testament person looking forward, you might have thought, if well, you know, if the Messiah has to die, the only way he can die is die an honorable death from a cause. Like the soldiers, today is Veterans Day. And we forget that it was the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month that World War I ceased. One of the most horrible wars the world has ever seen. With thousands and thousands of soldiers walking into machine gun fire with military tactics and strategy that were barred from the Civil War. Because remember, the generals who fought World War I studied the techniques and strategies and tactics from the Civil War of America. The Civil War in America is looked upon as one of the classic wars of all time. It's taught all over the world. Military academies in Russia, France, England, they all refer to the tactics, particularly of General Lee. Because Lee was a master strategist and tactician. And this is why there were so many Union generals that got fired and replaced, because they had had a problem. You know who Lee was? He was their professor at West Point. Lee taught most of those Union generals when they were students, 21 years old. So now you can imagine, here you are up against your professor on the battlefield, the guy who taught you how to fight. So it's a little intimidating to get a flavor for what that was. When uh, Harry Truman fired MacArthur after World War II, uh, keep in mind, in the Korean War, keep in mind that for a long time, for about a year before MacArthur was fired, he was covered for by the Pentagon. Who was in the Pentagon? the people who were studying at West Point when MacArthur was commandant. See, MacArthur had retired before World War II started. These men have intimidating presences because they're so great, they're so good. Well, that's how Messiah would have been conceived. If he had to die, it would have been an honorable death. A death on the battlefield, leading the armies of Israel in victory against Rome. But how did he die? This Jesus? He died like a criminal. That's the problem. We don't understand this because we we come to Christianity all comfortable. We don't live in the first century. We don't live part of that community. And the New Testament people struggle with this. How could the Messiah die in such an unglorious way? I mean, it was just like he's incarnated today and he dies in the electric chair. Why did he do this? And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, we have the Apostle's explanation. And it does not settle well. Because 
You remember Peter, when he heard that the Messiah was going to die, he, he tried to fix it so it wouldn't happen. And you remember what the Lord Jesus' remark was to that. Get thee behind me, Satan. And Peter really must have been hurt by that kind of a response. The Lord looked right at him and, and said he was basically going along with Satan. Well, in Galatians chapter 3, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having... Now, watch the language here very, very carefully in the light of what I just said. This is the kind of the death of the Messiah. The death of the Messiah, not glorious. Not what you would think of the coming triumphant king leading his armies in battle to victory. Galatians 3.13 says, He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Look at, if those of you who have study Bibles, where do you notice that is quoted from? Deuteronomy 21.23. So, guess what we're going to do? We're going to go to the Old Testament and look at Deuteronomy 21. Part of the criminal code of the nation Israel. Now, what we're doing tonight and next week is we're looking at these features in the death of the Messiah because it's out of these features that we will understand the gospel. I don't want to get to the doctrine yet. All we're doing now is paying attention to what does the text say? What do the New Testament authors say about this cross? And in Deuteronomy 21... 22, it says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, you will hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you will surely bury him on the next day. For he who was hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, in the context, I have to laugh at the context, all of you who have raised teenagers will get a good one out and chuckle out of this one. In verse 18 was how that they dealt with a teenage problem. They had juvenile delinquents in Israel. But you'll notice what it says. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chasten him, he will not even listen to them, goes out in the garage and makes bombs, then his father and mother shall seize him, bring him out to the elders at the gateway of the city of his hometown, and they will say to the elders of the city, This son of ours is a stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of this city shall stone him to death. So you will remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it in fear. Now, you say, oh, isn't that horrible? Oh, yeah? How many bombings do they have in their schools? See, there's a principle here in Scripture. And the principle is that there are certain divine institutions, and one of them, divine institution number three, is called the home. And that's the place where respect for authority is learned. And if it isn't learned in the home, guess where else it has to be learned? 
out in the streets. Society has to teach it. We have to have thousands and thousands of policemen to teach it. We have to have the courtroom teach it. We have to have the schools teach it. Somebody else. Because it wasn't learned where it's supposed to be learned, which is right here. See, in the Mosaic Law, they had wisdom. This is why this law makes a fantastic study. And I'll bet you you've gone to church for 20 years and never heard once sermons on the law codes of Israel. And yet these law codes are filled with wisdom which, if applied today, would revolutionize how we live. Verse 18 and 19, in context, are saying that in the nation Israel, if you did not learn basic respect for authority in the home, you were simply eliminated. You weren't even a player. That solved a lot of the dilemmas of 40 and 50 year olds that still haven't learned authority. Now, it's cruel. It sounds very cruel. But I would submit to you that God, who is omniscient, who created us, does know a little bit about how to rule us. And if this is what he was authorized, then I would suspect that there's good reasons for doing this and would be some wonderful consequences that would follow. Well, the whole passage has to do with capital punishment crimes. It's just that I've gotten off a little bit in verse 18 to 21 just to give you a flavor for some odd places in the Scripture, in case you haven't seen those. This is one case of capital punishment among many others. And verse 22 and 23 summarize what happened in any case that involved capital punishment. By the way, they also had something else in verse 21 about the method of execution. They did it with stones. And people say, well, why don't they just chop their head off? Why do they do it with stones? We can't be sure of exactly the reasoning, but it's been suggested that they did it with stones for the same reason that today, uh, when there are executions, say, in a military context, the firing squad, they have multiple shooters in the firing squad. Why do they have multiple shooters? Because they're incapable of hitting the person? No. It's because each shooter doesn't know if he was the one who killed the person. And so with a stoning, no one stone, no person could be sure that it was their stone that killed the person. It's a horrible thing. I mean, can you imagine being called out? And we're not talking about stones off the ground here. You go to Israel and you see what kind of stones they have. Right, Paul? <laughs> Big ones. Places loaded with them. Those are the stones that they were dropping on you. You get one of those that breaks your leg, and the next one breaks your arm, the next one breaks your head. That's the kind of stones that they hit with. Now, the interesting thing about it was, you know who was the first one to throw the stone? The person who had to stand in the trial and be the one who was the witness. That's a very sobering corrective to false testimony. So you can play all kinds of games in today's courtroom because the lawyers will get you off and we get this little gimmick and that little gimmick and this procedure thing and that procedure thing and all the rest. It just becomes one big maze of confusion. But they had a way of cutting to the quick on the Mosaic Law Code. You, you accusing this guy? Okay, you get out there and you put on, you do lay in the first stone. And if you had to do that, stand up in front of the whole community and do that, I dare say that it produced a little sobering care in what you accuse people of. Because now they knew you. 
Of course, the person had the trial. It wasn't just arbitrary accusations here. After the accusations had been considered, the sobering result, would we bring a charge against the person? Would you bring a charge against the person? If you knew that as a result of this, you would be the one who gets to kill him in public, in front of the community. Very sobering stuff. They had a lot of built-in constraints in this method. But the point we're getting at tonight is that in verse 22 and 23, after they executed the person, they would hang their corpse on a tree. Now this is another interesting insight into capital punishment and how it was done. The way God wanted it done wasn't in some high-security prison somewhere behind with a television camera going and maybe five and a half people watching. It was done in public so everybody watched. And not only did everybody have to watch the execution, but the corpse had to hang there for a few or five hours, however long till sunset. Why is that? So everybody walking by could see it. You know, have you ever seen a corpse hanging there, blood all over the place? What a mess. And hour after hour, flies all over it and everything else. This is the story. And people have to walk around. This is in the town square. I mean, if you had to go to your business, you had to walk by this corpse while it flies all over it. And this is, this is the sobering nature of execution in Israel. Now, the interpretation is given in verse 23. This is Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. His corpse shall not hang all night in the tree. You will surely bury him the same day. Why? Because you do not want to defile your land. In other words, the corpse is dirty. A corpse is filth. A corpse speaks of death. So the idea here is to just let it be exposed enough to get the point across. And then we're going to bury it because it's filth. And we bury it and clean up so there's no sanitation problem and all the rest. But squashed inside of verse 13, of verse 23 rather, there's a parenthesis. And that parenthesis is the theological reason that God wanted taught through execution. He said, for he who is hanged is cursed of God. So when people went by... They saw this mess, bloody mess, hanging from a tree. And what did they have to think about? What did we say earlier about this? What characterizes the biblical view of justice? Whence cometh it? The attribute of God's holiness. It is God-derived. So when we see a judgment... It is a curse, not of the state, but it is a curse of God. In this case, God is the state because he's the king of Israel. So the lesson focuses once again on this thing that we'll come back to over and over and over again in study of the cross of Christ. God's justice. And all the people who watch these things have that as a talk. Now the question is, the question is this. How do you reconcile the Lord Jesus Christ not dying a glorious, victorious death, the death of a hero, but the death of a criminal who is cursed by God. Do you see? 
You see why this is a stumbling block? This is a real stumbling block to someone who visualizes the Messiah as a reigning oriental king. He dies like with his body in the blood and the flies. He's hanging there like God's cursed him. You see, there's no way we can explain this apart from what the New Testament does with it. Let's conclude by turning to 2 Corinthians 5. Maybe this verse now will have a little more power to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. See, people think... They read the New Testament, and you'll get this kind of thing in the college classroom a lot, where somebody's read 55 journals about the concept of the death and the Christian religion or something. And they come out with a stupid view of Jesus Christ's death. It's an accident or it was a plan gone astray or something. But when they get to a verse like 2 Corinthians 5.21, they just can't make sense of this. Now that's why we spent 15 minutes going over Deuteronomy for us. So Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 teaches us why you have the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.21 quickly. He made him who knew no sin to be what? To be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him to be sin. That's the explanation the Christian has for why the corpse of Jesus Christ had to go through the same kind of treatment as the most foul criminal of Israel. Because on the cross, that's what Christ became. This is an amazing thing. This is absolutely amazing. He humbled himself and became obedient. You remember that passage in Philippians 2? We studied it in the canonic passage. And what does it say? He became obedient even unto death, and then what does it say? Even the death of the death of the cross. Now you see, now do you see why the New Testament keeps saying it? The death, the death of the cross. There's a, there's a passion behind it because now the New Testament the old New Testament writers knew Deuteronomy. Jesus would die not just a death, but he died such a death that if he hadn't become sin for us then he had become sin somehow because he was judged of God when he died. So why did he become sin? That's the question the New Testament leaves you with. If you don't accept that Jesus Christ substituted for our death, then why was he condemned to die? What was going on during the execution? Because we're going to come up to another point and pay, and next week and pay, bottom page 78. Look at the next one coming up. Jesus Christ was not killed by the Romans. Jesus Christ was not killed by the Jews. Jesus Christ chose the exact moment of his death. Another stunning thing. Few people notice this about the New Testament text. But as he hung there on the cross, he chose the exact moment to die. When he said, it is finished, he took some uh, liquid stuff for pain and said, that's it, I'm checking out. Done. Nobody has ever died like that. 
And the fact of the matter was that this Roman army officer who had witnessed hundreds and hundreds of executions stood there and he looked at this and he'd never seen a man die like the Lord Jesus Christ. Never. Never seen a guy. This isn't some wimpy guy. This is a Roman soldier. He watched this all the time. That was his job. Never had he seen anybody die like this. With such power. Everything under his control. But he was on the cross. And there was all this blackness. And his body was hanging there. And the Jews went, wait a minute. How can Messiah die this way? What a horrible way for Messiah to die. How embarrassing. But is it embarrassing? It's not embarrassing ultimately. It's only embarrassing if we fail to comprehend why he had did what he did. And then all of a sudden, instead of being embarrassed, we are ashamed. Because it's our shame and it is our sin that brought him to that point. So the embarrassment quickly turns into, into shame. Father, thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has kept alive this record, this testimony in Scripture. And we ask that he constantly keep in our mind what he has done for us. In days when we feel down, days when we feel up, may we always remember that you change not. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you are always holy, that you are always just. And because you are, we have to come into some sort of an adjustment to your holiness. And we can't make that adjustment from our side. You have to make the adjustment from your side toward us. And for that reason, we thank you through the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Amen. Okay, uh, we have about 15 minutes or so. Um, I'd like to sp spend this time if you can uh, direct your questions, at least in the general subject area that we've been on. We tend to get off from A to Z on some of these question and answer periods. But is there some, uh, are there any things, anything that um, topics that you would like to see me cover? Um, in connection with the death of Christ as we move on because there's going to be a lot of um, doctrine truths that come out of this things like propitiation redemption what these mean and, and their implications but I'm open to questions well Debbie I guess you've got to start us off <laughs> Good question. Um, Debbie's asking about what is the um, 
proper human response to the cross of Christ, to the, to, to the execution that he had. Um, and obviously, in order to answer that question, there is a proper response, and the, where we go to look for that isn't modeling our responses after somebody else that we know that like. It's actually going back to the pages of the New Testament and seeing how people responded then, because the New Testament gives the norm for the response. So, as you look at that, um, let's think about some responses, the different ones that we can think about in the New Testament. Um, what kind of response did the disciples have on the road to Emmaus before the Lord caught up with them? How would you characterize their response? Disappointment. Kind of uh, a deflation that they had placed their trust in, in the Messiah, and uh, this, is, this is the end of it? This is what it all came to? Now, let's think about that. See, we, we need to get into that because we're so far centuries removed from it, we see the results of it. And we, we don't get back into the text enough to see what would it have been like had we been there. You know, it's easy for us. Oh, well, we could, yeah, we know. Yeah, sure we did. Um, they were walking along the Emmaus Road, and they were very discouraged. I mean, think about these people had, some of them, many of them, had, had sold their businesses uh, to come join this Christian group. Uh, they had made a lot of personal sacrifices. And, and now it ended up this way. You know, what a, what a heartache kind of thing. Um, all right, let's, let's correct that response. See, that's one response. Why is that response, what, what's missing in their understanding that led to that response? Why would they have been disappointed? Let's put it back. What were they hoping would happen? If they were disappointed by the cross, what were they hoping that would have happened and the cross happened instead? Can you imagine? I mean, I, I mean it's, it's up for grabs because it's, well, you're our imaginations. Yeah, I mean, to anyone who was sensitive to justice and injustice as a downtrodden people, they're no different from the downtrodden people today who cry for freedom. Um, and it's not necessarily a bad thing to do. It's just that that wasn't what God was doing in Christ there at that chapter of history. So what, what had they, in, in a deeper way, what was wrong about their desire to be politically liberated. Now, I'm trying to phrase this delicately because political liberation is not a wrong thing. But what was, let's put it this way, what's insufficient about yearning for political deliverance? What's insufficient about that yearning that the cross of Christ answers? The yearning for political freedom is a human thing. It's a horizontal thing. It's my everyday situation thing. But what doesn't it think about deeply enough? It doesn't think about where am I spending eternity? It doesn't think, therefore, in terms of who am I as a creature? What is my ultimate problem? Why do I have a problem in the first place with political 
servitude. What's wrong with this world? Yes. Okay, they were thinking they were thinking of Christ as doing what a human leader that they would think of would do. A, a compassionate leader, a righteous and just leader. Wouldn't a righteous and just leader try to lead them to freedom? And we've had numerous instances down through history. So that isn't wrong. It's just incomplete and, and too, too shallow. Did they... Might have. Moses did that, by the way, didn't he? He gave them freedom, political freedom, the most stupendous, uh, bloodless, day, by the way. I mean, there was no... Israel didn't have any army to give them freedom. It's one of the most interesting um, freedom movements in history. Um, so they had the Mosaic model, but even if they had thought about the Mosaic model, what should they have given a little bit more thought about? Did Moses raise up an army to fight Pharaoh? Did Moses lead them in a battle against Pharaoh? No. So had they thought a little bit more about the Mosaic model, it might have tipped them off that maybe if Jesus is the second Moses, and Moses got us out of Israel with the help of God, it was a supernatural deliverance, wasn't it? So they might have thought, well... What's supernatural about this, this cross thing here? There must be a, what's God doing in the cross? I think that's why the apostles had, the Holy Spirit used these passages. I mean, because you see the apostles when they write, they keep citing these Old Testament passages. So I think that the Holy Spirit didn't necessarily have to say, Paul, check out Deuteronomy 21. I rather think that Paul knew Deuteronomy 21 enough in his rabbinical studies that he poured back to the Torah to understand well, what's going on here. And as he rolled it, went, went back and he thought about that, he had to connect. And it was the Holy Spirit who made the connection in this verse we had tonight. Connecting execution of criminals judged by God and trying to make sense of that Paul had to come to the conclusion that Christ had to become a cursed person. Now, if Christ became a cursed person, what caused him to become the cursed person? And then I think that was how he probably was led to see, oh, wait a minute here. Now I see Messiah, Isaiah 53. What did it say? He bore our griefs. He bore our sorrows. Oh, well, maybe what we're seeing here in this cross is that there was a movement. There was a, tr a transform going on. There was a transfer. And I think that that was one of the insights that they got from this. From this. The, uh, I, guess, I guess I can see where they would be Like, oh, oh, gone. Now we lost, we lost that problem. Now 
Massachusetts. But the thing that, that I don't understand is for those that, that did know the scriptures so well, weren't there plenty of illusions that this battle was going to be um, a supernatural battle and that, that when they saw that this wasn't, that, that, you know, that Christ did die, and they, they felt as though he was the Messiah, that knowing that, um, that it wouldn't be an earthly battle, so to speak. I mean, Daniel and Ezekiel and all of these kind of, kind of allude to much bigger things than that. I guess I don't understand why it didn't click then that, oh, well, we don't need to give up hope yet. You know, we, this is, you know, this is just different than, than what we expected a minute ago. I guess, I mean, I see, I see human reasoning from it, but I guess if they, if, if they understood Ezekiel and, and, and Daniel and, and all these prophecies, why it wouldn't click to them at that point that, that, that was different. Not just that it was... Yep. Go ahead. I almost see it as being, that way it would be worse, to know that he was the Messiah, to know that he was divine, had some deity, and then to see <coughs> death, see him die. You know, I mean, he had escaped death apparently at least one time right. they wanted to kill him, and to really believe that he was the Messiah, and then to be in that, that, that point before he, before his resurrection, I would think would almost be more despair to think that, you know, because we don't, even though Lazarus was raised from the dead and, you know, the child was raised from the dead, raising from the dead wasn't a common thing and, and he was the one that did the raising from the dead. So now he's gone, none of us can do it, you know, and I, yeah. I would think that would almost be more despair Mm -hmm. I think that's a good insight, and Debbie sharing with us, is that those closest to him that glimpsed his glory might have been very despondent over this. Because think about the role of the women and the apostles on Sunday morning when he rose from the dead. They didn't get it either. I mean, think about the kind of snotty, snotty reception um, the women got when they went back to the to the apostles. You know, oh, give me a break. Um, these, it's easy for us. I guess we're Monday morning quarterbacking here, George. Um, we're not caught up in the in the current of the times. And I don't mean to be too critical, and, and not even of the apostles, because they weren't as learned as somebody like Paul. Where you know, but there had to be other people in the group that were just as learned as Paul. Now maybe there were, and maybe they weren't responded, but we don't we don't read about them. Right. So, well, be careful. Be careful. It, be careful, George, in saying that there might have been other le more learned guys who should have gotten it. Keep in mind that Paul was learned when he was persecuting the Christians too. Ultimately, what happens here, and it gets back to Debbie's original question, which is the proper response. Uh, to the gospel, I think we have to, when we observe the dynamics of what was going on here, we are forced back to the fact that 
were it not through the working of the Holy Spirit in opening our eyes, we would not have come to this conclusion. The cross of Christ would not have been properly understood apart from God opening eyes to this. It wasn't like it was all laid out in the scripture. One, two, three, four. It's not laid out in the scripture, one, two, three, and four. There's a mystery to scripture, and it's encouraging to me to think that one of the great mysteries of the Old Testament is how can God be just, holy, and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus? How can, he, how can these two things come together? And that was resolved at the cross. And what's so neat about this is we have these other problems. You know, how can, a, how can a holy, omnipotent God allow evil? And that's a tension for us. And we haven't got the answers other than fall back on the fact that God is glorifying his name. One day, I am certain that every one of us in this room who has believed will sit very comfortably saying, wow, now I see. And the answer will be so comforting and so rationally consistent that whatever questions we ever had about any piece of suffering ever in the entire history of our life will just evaporate. Just as though this cross thing, when, when, when the apostles finally got it, what ignited them, as far as a response, a dynamic response, it went out and just blasted the gospel out into the whole world, was that it's been resolved. God is holy and righteous and He's also loving and redemptive. And He did it. But we would never have forecast it to have been done that way. That's the difference. So now in terms of our response, I would think that this response, um, I think frankly myself, I was led to the Lord in a very sloppy way. Um, I had a very... I think, a very poor um, gospel presentation given to me when I was in college. And God's grace, I believed, didn't really know what I was believing. And I'm sure that is true of some of you. Um, and it was only after you were a Christian that you know, the Holy Spirit deepened your understanding. Oh, that's what it's all about. Wow. So I think the response is one of profound thanksgiving rather than the idea of, um, well, now I'm going to live for Christ. Now I'm going to do these things. Not that that's wrong. But the first and most basic motif down the deepest level here isn't what I'm going to do for Jesus. The deepest level is what he's done for me. And it's us as a passive agent. Because if we're not passive and we don't receive, our cup is never full. And if our cup is never full, it never is going to run over. So, I'm not saying don't do-do things for Jesus. But in doing things for Jesus, it's got to be motivated properly. And the motivation has got to be not what my peers think of me, not what my husband thinks of me, not what my wife thinks of me, not what my kids or my parents or the church or something else. It's got to be a personal and individual thing in our hearts that goes back to the cross, always. And when we confess our sins for the thousands and eighth time in our Christian experience, in our walk, what do we go back to? We go back to the cross. So we've got to get it here that it's as though we're back in Eden 
going and, and garden, you know, he has his garden zone, and there's only one gate. And we can't ever meet God except at that one gate. And the gate is the cross. Not another gate. It's not like now we're Christians. Now we can meet God in another gate. Oh, no. Even as Christians, we still go back to the same gate. The non-Christian has to come to the gate. The Christian has to come to the gate. All of us have to come to the gate. Why? Because God is a just God. And there is no other resolution. Now, the world doesn't like this. The world... We are today uh, pariahs because we're the only people on the face of the planet that won't go along with multipluralism. We won't be those, we're those stubborn right-wing fundamentalists, stupid people that won't get with the program and accept everybody's stupid opinion as though it's of equal merit. But you see, from inside our camp, what do we see? If the question is how to know God and He's holy and He's done this work, how dare we come up with all kinds of alternative proposals here? I mean, this was pretty, uh, a pretty in-depth thing that Jesus did. To argue that it was unnecessary, I mean, it, it boggles the mind to think that a human being could propose an alternative method of salvation. If the blasphemy is that I can engineer it better than God. You know, hey, he didn't have to do it that way. There's cleaner ways of doing it. Really? Not if, it's, not if you're dealing with a God that we know from Scripture. So, I think, in summary, the response to the cross has got to be profound things. I mean, what can you do? You can, what do you do with something like this? Somebody has done this kind of thing for you personally. What do you do except receive it and be thankful? And then because of the insight that gives to our God's character, now it's His love that motivates us. He first loved us. Okay, now as we grasp and can run with a, with a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger picture of His love for us, that, that's where our stability and confidence comes from. But it's not this hustle and do it and all the rest of it for God. Because that runs out of gas real soon. Okay, well our time is up. And